Jane Gatsby. If you haven't heard this name yet, it's just a matter of time before you do. Jane is an up-and-coming intellectual, philosopher, and content creator. She has a very impressive podcast called Wonderland that caught my attention, and she's just all around the powerhouse of the human. We talk about women in the intellectual space, pronouns and bios, capitalism, the challenges with social media and potential solutions, and many other interesting and fun topics. I think you'll really enjoy this episode. If you're watching this, it means you're accessing our non-premium version of this content. If you'd like to access our premium version, please head over to Patreon and subscribe. You can find a link in the description. Patreon supporters get access to this content days before it goes live anywhere else. It's ad-free, and you get access to exclusive content that's not uploaded anywhere else. It's our Patreon supporters who help us ultimately on our mission to reconcile between people in conflict, and without you, we couldn't be doing what we're doing. So, thanks in advance for your support. Welcome to Standing Up. Jane Gatsby, it's great to have you. Oh, thank you so much for having me. So, I first found, about, found out about you a few months ago. You really came onto the scene with a boom. And be, <laughs> before we hear that story, I actually want to tell you why I dis- I reached out to you to invite you on. I'm only doing around one to two of these interviews a month. The main, the main content I do are the live streams, debates between people from different sides, primarily Israelis and Palestinians. But the reason I reached out to you is because it seems like you're doing everything right in order to succeed in this space. And I have a feeling if I waited a few years, you'd be much harder to reach. <laughs> I have a feeling you're going to blow up. So I figured I'd get you when you're still small and then uh, we'll have a relationship. So then when you blow up, I'll be able to reach out to you and I could bring Perfect. you. Yeah. Sounds so, like a good plan. Yeah. So you had what I consider a breakout moment. Um, mm-hmm. It involves a picture. You could, mm-hmm. you could share exactly, you know, what that breakout moment was. Um, I also want to know if that was planned out and intentional. Did you see that as I, Jane Gatsby, are now going to enter the scene? Um, I definitely wasn't anticipating it was going to blow up as much as it did. What I did is um, I've been following like lots of um, IDW people and stuff like that for the past few years. And for those unfamiliar, um, IDW is the in- intellectual dark web. I have a diverse mm-hmm. audience, so it's not. Yeah, for sure. Um, and so James Lindsay is somebody who kind of is like adjacent to that group of people who a few years ago kind of broke into the mainstream because of this like grievance studies hoax that he did, which I'm sure you must be familiar with. Um, and so I've been following his work and stuff. And then back in October on Twitter, he started jokingly posting about saying that he wanted people to dress up as a sexy version of him for Halloween because people always do like goofy, sexy Halloween mm-hmm. costumes. And he kept advertising, like, come and dress up as sexy James Lindsay. And he has like a very iconic like uh, avatar that he uses on Twitter. And I just remember looking at that and thinking, oh, this is something I could really easily recreate by going to a thrift shop and getting a tie and a blazer and a little skirt and whatever. And it would be kind of funny to do. And I like his work and stuff like that. So I just went and got the things for the costume and then took a photo of it and tagged him in it but then it really blew up when he retweeted it and started sharing it around and then I got like I think about a thousand followers in the next 24 hours just from that picture right so that that's that's how I found out about you Mm -hmm. as well and it was quite I mean it was quite clever it seems like the kind of thing that would get a lot of men interested right away (laughs) Uh, there was a little bit of I, I did see some people were hating on you for it, which, mm-hmm. you know, it goes without saying anybody who's going to be in the public sphere is going to receive some kind of hate because that's just the the world we're living in. But 
I, I kind of want to talk more about that. What kind of negative reactions you received to that photo? And we'll put, we could put that up on the screen unless you've taken it offline and it's for me. No, it's still up there. I don't yeah. mind. Um, it'll be up on the screen. <laughs> Um, yeah, it was funny because it, men seemed to respond positively to it. That wasn't a big issue, but then there was a, a good proportion of like older women who were offended. I got accused a lot of like trying to look younger than I was and kind of playing into some like perverted sexual fantasies or something, which I thought was so bizarre because I hadn't done anything to make myself look any younger. And then I had women who are only a few years older than me accusing me of trying to like appeal to, I don't know, <laughs> men who are. Right. I'm still, yeah. It's interesting that most of the negative reaction for that specifically was from women. It's, it's almost like, w would you say it's fair that it comes from, it could come from, I, I could see it coming from two places. One, you could have a stance that um, we should, you know, women nor men should objectify themselves in order to, get a reaction right and that that's mm -hmm. a topic a conversation we'd have but i think also there might be some something involving envy there because it's not something that anybody can do you need to look a certain way to be able to pull up a photo that will get a lot of attention the way it did what, what do you think really yeah. played into into that reaction yeah i think and uh, i don't want to accuse anyone of being envious but like it, it's it, tricky, just, it did seem it's tricky territory to tread. I realized that. Yeah, it seemed like a disproportionate, like negative reaction that I wasn't expecting. Well, and also some of the replies I was receiving, because in my head, I think part of the issue is that I didn't really, for me, it was, I was very intentionally like, oh, this is just a funny thing to do. I was hoping that James would see it. And maybe um, it, I was thinking, okay, maybe this will get like a few hundred likes if I'm lucky or something. And then it went way beyond that. Um and so then I had all these people kind of accusing me of objectifying myself, which is another interesting thing in that I think there's there's lots of kind of discourse right now around like um, pornography and sex work and OnlyFans and things like that. And people seem to have quite a negative reaction to stuff like that for, you know, some understandable reasons. But, but I kind of feel that there is a difference between objectification versus sexualization. And, and to me, the photo in my head was like, this is just a goofy thing to be doing. And I said, I've got my legs sprayed and everything because he's man spreading in the picture that he took. Right. And so it's very just tongue in cheek, but it wasn't supposed to be this big, like, okay, here I am guys, this is the thing I'm doing. Cause then I had a lot of people messaging me being like, oh, just start an OnlyFans and stuff like that. Or my interest primarily, and has always been, I want to come onto the internet and talk about ideas. And it just so happened that, that was the thing that nudged me into the limelight. And so then right. people are accusing me of being like, oh, well, you can't be taking these ideas seriously because you're posting photos like this because they don't understand that. Well, no, I have this whole intellectual project that I've been working on for the past four years and all these ideas I've been quite passionately developing. They just see, oh, a girl takes a sexy picture and now she has a thousand Twitter followers and that's so stupid and unfair. Right. So right. I, think I think there's some jealousy from the men too, in terms of there definitely seems women seem to have such a strong competitive advantage in any online circles, but that also depends on the circles you're participating in. Like it's because so, I'm interested in politics. So yeah, for, first I just want to touch on the point that, you know, it seems like today most people pro probably know you from that photo, but in a few years, that's going to be a, a small minority of people. Most people are going to know you for your intellectual work. And I wouldn't have just invited you on if it was just the photo. I looked into what you do and your podcast is very impressive and we'll talk more about that later uh, in this session. But I think what you did was legit. I mean, we, we all are born with certain gifts, whether intellectual or looks or 
athletic, whatever it may be. And, you know, we could use that to our advantage. Um, you mentioned difference between sexualization and objectification. H- how do we, I feel like the line between those are blurred. I, I personally, I agree that there's a difference. I don't know how to clearly define the difference between them. Yeah, I'm not sure if I could offer anything that would be easily digestible. I, I, it's just something I've kind of seen come up a fair bit where people will accuse um, girls who have OnlyFans accounts or whatever it is of objectifying themselves, which to me kind of suggests like you're you're dehumanizing yourself and you're debasing yourself in some way, which is um, contemptible. Whereas sexualization, there's you're still a human person. It's it's not just, right. about, oh, look, here's my body. Because to me, sex is a lot more, there's a lot more to sex than just, oh, here's a body. There's a lot more reasons that somebody might find you alluring. And going back to what you said about, yeah, if that photo had just blown up because of the picture itself, then the people that followed me because of it wouldn't have stuck around for long. Like exactly. you have to be actually providing some st- something substantive behind it to keep the interest going for a long term. Right. I'm with you. you Nothing. Men- yeah. Yeah. You, you mentioned something that I agree with that I think uh, is considered quite controversial that women in a certain sense have an easier time breaking through in certain spaces. Cause it's often depicted that there's um, gatekeepers that hold women back. And, and I do think that is the case in many instances. I think certain mm-hmm. hierarchies are harder to climb for women. I, I think, um, Sexism in the workplace seems pervasive. I think naturally men view the opinions of women as lesser, whether innate or, or societal. I'm not, I'm not quite sure, but I have noticed that like, if, if a woman is giving input, men are less likely to, to give weight to what she's saying, like if it's another man. So all these things, you could see how it would put women at a disadvantage. But as you mentioned, there, you think there's also some advantages to being a woman in the, this space. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Both um, because I know my target audience is going to be predominantly male. And it also just the um, interest that I have. It just seems like most of the intellectuals in those circles are men. And I mean, I'm happy to befriend as many girls as I can. Whenever I receive a follower who is like another girl my age, I'll intentionally go out of my way to forge a friendship with her, even if she has a really tiny account, just because it's so rare that you find girls that share my interests. Um, but I had a very common sense understanding coming into things of like my target audience is all of the people that were obsessed with Jordan, like all the guys my age that are obsessed with Jordan Peterson four years ago that maybe now have like not really been as up into their um, philosophy and psychology and stuff like that. Um, I hear that. You know, so, yeah. Sorry. No, I was just going to say, even I am somewhat envious because I see some of the people who follow you and comment on your post. I'm like, motherfuckers, like, why, why can't they follow me? You know, so <laughs> I, 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 I feel, I feel the envy that some, some guys probably feel, but, um, you know, we, we all have our advantages and disadvantages in different areas. Yeah. I think I also just have a natural, like I've been online for a very long time since I was like a little kid and I've got a pretty natural knack for understanding at this point, how social media works, the sorts of things people are interested in, how to curate, um, you know, a, platform that's interesting and get develop a following of people and and so I think that's a skill set too that maybe isn't acknowledged as much I mean of course if I was a man it would be more difficult but that also is definitely playing a role that is more implicit than people would realize right I hear that 
You recently had some uh, drama involving pronouns on Twitter. <laughs> yeah, what happened with that? Mm -hmm. um, one night at like 2 a.m., I decided I was going to throw my pronouns in my bio. Um, just because I thought, you know, why not? Mm -hmm. um, I like the idea of being kind of I, the, everything that I do, I try to be as non-alienating as possible, which is an incredibly difficult task on the internet. People are always going to find something to pick you apart over. But especially with the podcasts and stuff, I try to develop everything so it doesn't really matter where you're coming from. You can kind of latch on to something and understand it. And, and before I'd put the pronouns in, I also added roses to my Twitter handle, which on Twitter is like um, roses synonymous with like socialism for some reason. Interesting. And so people normally take a rose emoji and they say, oh, okay, that means you're a socialist. But I just really like roses. I've always liked, I like roses a lot. I see, yeah. um, so I, I just thought, you know what? I really like these. I'm not going to not put a certain emoji in my profile because somebody might think I'm a socialist. So I intentionally put roses in the my thing. And then right below it, I put capitalist in my bio. So there'd be a little bit of confusion maybe if someone's trying to figure out what I'm about. But then, okay, I'll bounce it away, adding the pronouns in. So that way, I don't know. I think their pronoun issue is strange because for people that are anything older than 30, probably it seems like the most foreign thing in the world. And they don't quite understand that for girls my age that are in school, it is so just the cultural default now. That's right. the expectation. And that's really in reinforced strongly. Like this is just a small action that you can do. It, it's both like political signaling, obviously more so than I think it is like really representing solidarity with like transgender people or whatever. You're just saying, look, I'm a leftist because you can tell by my pronouns. Um, but the narrative around it is just like, look, it's just a small action that, you know, helps make people feel safe and comfortable. And I thought, okay, yeah, I'll throw them up. Michael Malice put his pronouns in his bio like a little bit earlier. So I thought I was kind of going copying him as well, even though that's not at all the worldview he's interested in. Right. But I received way more backlash for it than I ever could have imagined. Yeah, I saw that. I found it interesting. Yeah, I'm like my opinion on the pronouns is if you want them up, go for it. If you don't, mm -hmm. don't like, I, you know, I did. And this is just like a, a fringe group, but the people are now saying, if you don't, you, sh you need to put your pronouns up. If not, then you're like not showing solidarity and that. I take issue with that. Like, let's, let's let people express themselves as they wish, but people did seem very upset with that. And I, I think it's what you mentioned. It's the political signaling that, that they thought you were doing They're, They thought you were um, subscribing to wokeness wokeness just being the term for you know critical theory activism but um i think we often we we a lot of the people who follow you found out about you through james Lindsay and then mm -hmm. benjamin boyce so it's a very anti-woke crowd mm -hmm. and i i think people often think that anti-wokeness is an ideology but it's not so mm -hmm. you have trump is anti-woke and so is sam harris right like just the, mm -hmm. the spectrum of anti-woke couldn't be more wide. So a lot, a lot of the people who are anti-woke are also more of the conservative reactionary types. And they just, that, that's, that could explain some of the sexism you experienced, but also why people would just lash out for you for putting pronouns. And you lost a whole bunch of followers for that, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was surprising. I, I think what, something I responded to somebody criticizing me was just that if you if you can't handle the idea of like somebody else handling it, sorry, if somebody else having pronouns in their bio for you is enough reason to get disengaged, maybe you're the one who's like kind of approaching things from a biased point right. of view, not the, not them. Because right. 
the the idea that somebody signaling some tiny little thing makes you go, oh, this person's completely worth or worthless to talk to, um, yeah. is just very bizarre and very um, angry to me. And I I'm sad to see that sentiment being reflected more and more. Where I'll share some little tweet about, you know, you should try to be empathetic and extend compassion towards those who disagree with you. And then the responses people will send is just like, no, these people hate me and they want to kill me, and I've got no patience for that. Like, and they they don't realize that. Well, no, you're both just kind of more increasing polarization here when both of your intentions are fundamentally good. Right. Have you gotten that response more from people on the left or the right? Um, I couldn't say. I'm assuming most of them are right-wingers because I don't think many leftists Mm. follow me. Because I've actually noticed whenever I talk about like unity or empathy for the other, empathy for Trump supporters, whatever, it's normally people on the left who, who get a little bit angrier at me for those calls for unity. I yeah, it's probably a difference in our following then in terms of yeah, yeah, perhaps, perhaps. I don't quite yeah, I, I'd say I probably have a more left left leaning following. Yeah, that that's interesting. Yeah, I remember being shocked one time. A part of the inspiration for me putting my pronouns in the bio too is because I had seen something. There's this um trans YouTuber that I really, really love who makes video essays and she's just like a genius. And I disagree with like what's lots her, of her conclusions. Name? Patricia Taxon. Oh, check her, um, check her out. She makes like she'll do just a little video essays where she'll talk about um, like do movie analysis or video game analysis or sometimes she'll talk about politics or art. And she just has like really um, nuanced, interesting points of view. And it's all really beautifully put together. Um, and I've been a fan of her content for a really long time. And I remember one time sharing something that she tweeted because it was funny. And then somebody responded being like, yeah, pronouns and bio, like this person is obviously has nothing meaningful or worthwhile to say. And it's just so sad, like how people are so quick to reject anything that doesn't fall right into their realm of like acceptable ideas. Yeah. That, you think that that phenomenon that you just described is getting worse with time, that people are less tolerant to ideas, that people are becoming more polarized? Oh, Definitely. It certainly seems like it. Do you have any theories as to what is playing into that? Um, I think it's a beautiful little mix of the internet kind of allows people to niche and then the media and it seems like education and stuff are kind of pushing people in that direction in terms of ratcheting up the urgency because right. there used to be lots of communities on the internet where people could get together and talk about ideas, but there wasn't such an intense sense, politically speaking, that you know people's lives are in imminent danger and stuff like that. So right. I, I felt that more with the And there's like a whole outrage industry that, A, the mainstream media plays on, right? Like the mainstream media mm-hmm. just wants you to sit and watch as much TV as possible. So how do you do that? Fear, outrage, you know? Like they're yeah. not going to show you the 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 nice fun stuff because then you're just going to go to the it, it's it's essentially game theory. If any if any mainstream media would want to, it's like a prisoner's dilemma concept. If any mainstream media said, "I'm going to start focusing on positive stuff," people would be like, "Wait, but there's a war going on. There's people fighting. How can I focus on positive?" You know, plays into like our our uh, rep, reptile brain. Obviously, you're going to look at like the imminent danger that a different news station is is projecting into your life. So uh, media can't even show positivity because then they'll lose ratings. So it's like, it's like a race to the bottom with, with showing the most negative, the most outrageous stuff. And I think, as you mentioned, social media, you know, we, like we have our little niche communities and the only thing we kind of hear about our opposition is the most extreme views. So like, you're not going to, 
like uh, a left winger is not going to share what a moderate Trump supporter is saying, a nice nuanced mm-hmm. Trump defense. They're going to share the most racist, most outrageous things that Trump supporters are saying. That's what goes viral. So it kind of gives, not only does it give the impression that things are extreme, but that in itself seems to radicalize people because you think that your enemy is, that your opposition is what, radical, dangerous, wants to kill you. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm, I, I said we might get into this, but this actually leads nicely into libertarianism because you consider yourself a libertarianism, a libertarian. Yeah. 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 How do we solve the challenges of social media without government doing something about it? Um. Are you talking what kind of like recent talks about just censorship and stuff like that? Or more broadly speaking, or like referring to what you said about people kind of wanting to buy into negative news cycles and things. So I'd, I'd say both censorship is one, but I have a bigger concern. And yeah, I should have clarified that because if people are less speaking about this less, I'm concerned that social media has the ability to a to, to just ruin our lives, right? We become utterly addicted to it. It, it, right, it plays into our dopamine, it polarizes us, mm-hmm. and it gives the private sector essentially control over discourse. It seems awfully dangerous to allow this to just run on, on the free market. Now, I'm not, I don't love government, right? I, I don't want government to tell you what you can and can't say either. I don't have a clear solution. Mm-hmm. I just want to know if you have if there is a libertarian solution to, to such a challenge? Um, yeah, generally, I, I feel like there's a few things, uh, like um, any capitalist will be quick to point out that like big tap, tech corporations are kind of being propped up by, you know, certain um, special treatments that right. allow them to behave in the way that they've been acting. I'm never too concerned about a monopoly in terms of like, for again because i've been on social media for such a long time you kind of see the rise and fall of these things and now like they seem like such um ubiquitous applications like oh how will we ever go on without a twitter and it's like well i remember being on the internet before there was a twitter like i remember being on the internet when forums were the main way people communicated or when myspace was like the more, most popular social media so there's always going to be new things coming and i think as soon as like now that Twitter's kind of shifted in a direction where people are starting to realize, oh, we can actually, there's some problems with censorship and stuff here. I do think new platforms will organically emerge. Right now you're seeing, of course, the issue with like, okay, people can actually flock to Parler or Gab or something like that because of lots of meddling going on in the system that's preventing those natural um, shifts from taking place. But I do still kind of feel like this is a current problem, but it's not going to be a problem five or 10 years from Mm. now. It's just because it's the first round of realizing, oh, actually, there is kind of too much power consolidated too tightly. Um, But then I see people joking, too, about, you know, Elon Musk is throwing Internet up into space. And I wouldn't be put it past him to in a few years come out with his own version of an iPhone where he's like, yeah, you have some free speech. You know what I mean? Like you think of these things can't be crumbled and then until somebody comes out with a better product and then everyone will just move over. Yeah. And it because the it, value in open discourse is just always going to trump anything that's going to try to get in its way. Sorry for interrupting you. <laughs> no, no, all good. My, 
So first of all, real quick on, uh, you said Elon Musk. I always would say the only thing that I think could truly compete with an iPhone is if Tesla would launch their own uh, mobile. Mm -hmm. Like specifically Tesla, because that's a brand that has such a fan following that I think people would would flock there. Oh, I'd get one. And also yeah. like Lex Friedman, who I really admire, he like always Lex. is talking about, he's working on developing his own little social media, I think, where he's trying to address mm. some of the issues of kind of people, instead of encouraging negativity, he wants to spread love, of course. And so him and Elon are buddies, you know, like, I just think there's, okay. there's issues hopeful. right now. But I'm so hopeful in terms of, to me, the, um, the internet just seems to enable so much communication among people that otherwise wouldn't be able to have those conversations. That so long as they can escape somewhere and have those little talks, that they'll always be able to generate new solutions to issues that are being presented with the current norms. Okay. You've given me a little more hope. <laughs> well, that's nice. When, when, I see, when I see the current polarization and how extreme and post-truth people are becoming on both sides it's like we're losing connection to reality it's like damn how how could it yeah. how could it keep going in this direction but i try like, not to spend too much time occupying like what you're mentioning earlier about um the kind of how news is rewarded by putting out the worst possible stories I think that's predicated on an assumption, which right now is absolutely true for the majority of people that that is what they want to be consuming. But I also think that there's, you know, a good portion of people who realize actually, no, this isn't helpful or advantageous. And I don't want to be just inundated with negative messaging all the time. I'd rather if I can pay or whatever it is, or follow people that are sharing nicer messages that are more encouraging and optimistic, that's where I'd rather be getting my information from. And, and so that is, of course, reliant upon the individual to go, okay, this, this, and choose a different source of media. Yeah, so actually that, that kind of touches to the crux of like one of my biggest problems with um, free markets in general and what, and what I would say I see as one of the biggest problems in, in the United States and much of the Western world. It, if we look at the people who currently hold the power, it's government, it's the and it's the private sector, right? So let we we spoke about the media, how their business model is not to elevate our well-being, it's to make us watch TV. That happens to be directly contradictory to elevating our well-being. Mm -hmm. If you look at companies, they just want us to buy as much of a certain product as possible. Often that's not in line with our well-being, whether it's making something less healthy to cut the cost whether it's using certain marketing techniques to manipulate us into thinking we need something we don't. Um, and in effect, of, you know, we could see the effect of this, that you have something like 60% of Americans are overweight, 70% take prescription medication. Th this is the result of a population that from a very young age has been fed advertisements and just mass marketers essentially manipulating them and telling them what they should be doing, you get a sick and dependent population. How do we free ourselves from this in the free market? Um, I, I think oh, everything come, is downstream from philosophy, which is why I started my podcast where I did, because to me that seems like that's absolute bedrock in terms of developing principles and foundations that allow you to kind of conceptualize your relationship to the world and your relationship to yourself. And if you've got a firm philosophical grounding and you um, understand, 
what it is you want out of your life, then it becomes a lot easier to tune out a bunch of the noise. Because the problem with like, yeah, of course, the American diet is awful. And lots of that has to do with capitalism. And lots of that has to do with the fact that there's, you know, certain special interest groups that are getting in bed with the government and then coming and saying, oh, you know, smoke a pack of cigarettes or eat lots of sugary cereals or whatever it is. And and so it's neither one or the other. And, And but if the thing is, well, people want to to eat food that tastes good and is good for them. I think most people would agree with that. So there's some little thing that's coming in and interfering with the signal, or people are much more caught up in their hedonistic short-term indulgences, in which case there's a psychological or philosophical issue at play. But to the extent that people want what's actually in their best interest, um, I think the market is pretty good at providing those things for them. Hmm. Because I'm under the belief that we want what's in our best interest. We don't always know what that is. And Mm -hmm. often the the short-term temptations are stronger. Yes, I'd agree with that. Yeah. So I know that if I want to have a great day, I wake up, I don't touch my phone, I exercise, meditate, you know, treat myself well before I start my day. Mm -hmm. But that dopamine rush from getting on your phone is so strong. And mm-hmm. so, sometimes I'm strong enough, other times I'm not. But I feel like this is what humans are constantly struggling with today. It's like fighting all those temptations constantly um, in order to to be happy and healthy. And I think people are failing at this more than they're succeeding. You seem to that, that you seem to think that this there's a philosophical solution, and this is where your work. I, I'm I'm. I have one policy idea we, we, we don't need to get into now because I do want to hear about your podcast. It's leading. That's where this conversation mm-hmm. is leading. So you think through good ideas we can break through of our essentially dopamine addiction, as let's just call it the next fix. Yeah. And that does sound a little bit overly optimistic in terms of like, I absolutely like there is, there's absolutely a difference in terms of I can philosophically logically understand certain principles and then still wake up and not abide by the exact same things I'm trying to develop and stuff. Mm -hmm. So there's some extent of do what I say, not what I do. Um, But I still have a much more sunny disposition than many other people my age do. And also I think some of the issues that you're describing seem to stem from the fact that we are situated inside of a culture where we've become so dependent upon these things. I know like lots of people my age have little fantasies about, oh, if only I could live in a small little village in the woods by a stream and eat right. berries and not have a cell phone and read books and listen to records all day, then that I could finally escape from all this technology. And the truth is, is that we like technology because it can enable those fantasies uh, to come to light. Mm-hmm. But also we have to be able to kind of break apart from the systems and rubrics that we've been born into and be able to experiment a little bit more with um the lifestyles people would actually rather be living. So, and I, and I have lots of optimism in terms of that being a reality that can be explored more going into the future. Great. So let's talk about your current contribution to, to just that. Um, mm-hmm. Your podcast, which I was very impressed by, it's well thought out. Some even describe it as seductive. I, I saw people saying that, and you even, I saw you ask if people use it to fall asleep as an, is it asthma or ASMR? What's ASMR. It? Yeah. Um, I think that that might give it some of the appeal, but uh, to talk me through it. I want to know your thought process, what you're doing, how, you know, what the plan is. Um, it's funny because it kind of, it, it wasn't, I never intended it to be what it's turned into. 
um, for a really long time, I was just kind of sitting and watching and consuming lots of um, political, philosophical, uh, psychological like discourse online and developing my own ideas in relation to that and learning about separate things and kind of trying to formulate how I think about the world and lots of time spent trying to kind of reconcile what seemed to me like great divides on issues like um, free will and determinism or subjectivism versus objectivism and stuff like that, like issues that are, or issues with social science and stuff like that, that seemed to be kind of at the crux of lots of our ability to have productive and meaningful conversations. And I liked the idea for a while. I wanted to like make video essays and put them onto YouTube, but then I realized pretty quickly that actually making the video component was going to just be too demanding on me. And it isn't actually like the, the crux of what I'm interested in. It's the ideas that I want to share. So I thought, okay, I can just make a podcast instead. Cause that way I can just worry about writing the scripts and doing a little bit of audio editing, but it's not nearly as ambitious. And then I think I was having a conversation with my mom and she, I've been for a while, like was interested in writing like a children's book. So I'd been doing lots of stuff, exploring fairy tales and consuming lots of that media. So I thought it was interesting. And my mom suggested to me, well, why don't you just do your philosophy through a fairy tale? Because I'd been trying to adapt. I was thinking for the first like bit of content I wanted to produce was riffing from um, a speech Ayn Rand gave uh, called philosophy, titled Philosophy, Who Needs It? Um, where she just does an amazing presentation of unpacking what philosophy is as a discipline and the value it provides to people's lives. And I thought this is like so well put together. I just want to adapt it for a more modern audience and kind of take out some of the harshness to it and make it more accessible. Um, but And she starts off the little speech that she gives with a tiny little story about a man who goes up into space and has to consult uh, or confront these philosophical questions where he finds himself in a strange new world and he has to figure out where he is, how he can discover where he is and what he should do. And so I wanted to take that same little story and turn it into something different. And then my mom says, well, why don't you do it with a fairy tale? So then I got the idea of, okay, yeah, sure. You, you fall down the rabbit hole and into Wonderland. And I think it was, I was falling asleep one night and I suddenly came up with this metaphor of a maze in my mind. And then the more I started thinking about this metaphor as an analog for people trying to navigate their life in the world that, that they exist inside of, I realized, oh, this is actually quite persuasive and effective and I can do all sorts of fun little things with it. So that was the premise that caused me to start the first episode. And then after that, I basically every single one have had like a little tinkling of an idea of what I can do in the subsequent one. And then I put one out and then it's like, okay, now I have to start from scratch and start <laughs> developing. Okay. What's the next component of this story that I'm going to tell where I'm now pulling the listener on along a fairy tale like adventure, which has the, the little metaphors that are sprinkled throughout. Then I can kind of analyze um, just a normal discussion, which was also quite heavily inspired by um, last year, like in March, I read Go to Lesher Bach. And I loved that book to pieces. And that's what he does the entire way through is he'll have a dialogue and then he'll have an analysis. And there's like some similarities between them. And I just thought that was a really beautiful way to present information. And I'm sure that this process also helps you better understand and synthesize these ideas yourself in order to put them together that way. Yeah, it's definitely primarily a goal for me. Like I, listeners are excellent. And the funny thing is like the ASMR was not something I was intending upon at all. It's just suddenly it was a lot of the feedback I was receiving. Because I like the idea of when I was a kid, I listened to lots of bedtime stories on tape going to sleep. And I liked the idea of having something like like that where you're, it's like you're listening to a bedtime story kind of. It's calm and relaxing, but interesting enough to keep you awake. Right. Um, I can't remember where I was going with that. 
Well, you know, it is interesting because they say if you listen to audio while you're sleeping, you do pick up on some of it, like your brain picks up on it. So you could essentially create um, these episodes that are educating people while they sleep. They wake up as philosophers. Very brave new world. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, perhaps. They might not pick up on all the details, but it could give them a little a little something. Do do you have um, so? From what you said, it's not like you have a full season planned out. You're kind of just going one episode at a time, but they are connected somehow. The ideas are building off one another. I do have the the ideas have always been very uh, sequential. I've always known. Well, actually, it was more recent to start with philosophy, but then I knew I had to start with because I'm doing everything ground up. So metaphysics comes first. In the first episode, I introduced what they are and then metaphysics first, which I talk about through complexity theory. Then I go on to epistemology where I talk about critical realism and the issues with social science. And then because there's a lack of social science to let us have understandings about our um, moral and ethical nature, then I go into free will and determinism, and then, um, which I which I, I categorize under ethics, I kind of make this weird distinction between ethics and morality. And then the fifth episode, which is the last one I put out, was all about morality. So, so those all kind of build naturally off of one another. And then this one that I'm working on now is politics, because that's um, mm. morality applied to interpersonal relations. And then I do know the next, I think I'm going to have just 10 episodes this season, and the next five are all going to be um, politically based which make it exhausting for listeners that aren't that interested in that. But for me, that's like where my actual interest lies. Everything else is just building up the right. foundations for it. Although I do have some other philosophical interests. I'm like, maybe I'll do a second season, but I was never expecting it. So the ideas I have laid out, but the narrative component wasn't ever something I was really planning on. So I'm under the pressure now, every single time I'm writing an episode, I have to come up with some little story that accompanies it in a, something in a way that's charming and persuasive. And so those I have to come up with on the fly. But the mm. ideas I understand. I'm looking forward to seeing, seeing what you come up with. I want to. Yeah. Oh, I was just going to say I, I'm going to. I'm crossing my fingers. I have it out by the end of the month. I'll feel really badly if I don't. I keep. I'm always like over optimistic in how quickly I want to get things out. But also, the further along I go, the more I realize, oh, I don't actually have quite as full of a grasp on this as I thought I did. And I want. I'm doing it just for me. So that's what I was saying earlier. If there's other people listening, that's great. But ultimately, it's for me to formalize and ground my right. ideas and that way I have them as a referent other people if I can say if I'm having a conversation I can say look here's my fully comprehensive thing what I think about this um but also I don't want to present them in a way like okay this is my final say on the matter either yeah. which I know people are going to be quick to criticize educate yourself while educating those around you that's essentially mm-hmm. what this process is I like yeah that. um determinism and free will mm-hmm I think we're probably in agreement on them in their existence. So to tell me if, if you disagree, but determinism, I'm definitely open to the existence. I guess the only thing that would make life not deterministic is if we could discover something to be truly random, but I think it's hard to know if anything is random because we don't know mm-hmm. if it's random or just, we don't know how to determine it mm-hmm. and free will, even if, the universe is not deterministic. There still is not much of a case to be made for free will. Like that's kind of a, we don't got it kind of thing. At least the way I see it, even unless with you've my, got God, huh? unless you've got like a religious conception of God. Yeah. And even that it's hard to fit in, but I'm <laughs> yeah. God can make anything work essentially, I guess. Mm-hmm, it's true. It's yeah, a good e- cop out. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's the, it's the easy one. So are we pretty much in agreement thus far? Yeah, sounds like it. Cool. 
I'm wondering, do you think that there's any utility to teaching people these concepts? Because I think that certain, and, and this will get us to the difference between Sam Harris and Jordan Peterson, which you also spoke about. Mm-hmm. I view these as certain truths that are better off if they're not part of public discourse. Obviously, we shouldn't stop people from talking about it, but we shouldn't preach it or we shouldn't Hmm. teach it in schools because I just don't see what benefit um, we get from thinking that everything's deterministic and that we don't have free will. I I think some people might find benefit in it, but the majority, it might just lead them to nihilism or to not take responsibility for their actions. So I would disagree with you there. Um, I think then you would probably said more with Peterson on this, the debate in terms of, I, I accuse him of using like what I call a noble lie, like from uh, Plato, where it's mm-hmm. like you have to have, the entire society is founded upon this little nugget of complete falsehood. And then if, if anyone discovers that there's a lie at the crux of everything, the entire thing comes crumbling down. And I, I just don't think you need it. I, and I think it's much more elegant and beautiful and um like ethical and moral, if you have a built-in understanding to your worldview that every single other person around you is acting deterministically, it makes you a lot more compassionate and empathetic and forgiving. If you can see other people as just, look, they're, they're just caught in their own little domino chain and not to take anything personally from that um, and, and just to try to be open and understanding to people. And then in your own life, that's where the switch happens. So it's like, okay, you view everybody else through this one lens. And even you view yourself in terms of everything I've done in the past up until currently, it's like, I have to be completely um, absolved of to the extent that like, it couldn't have happened any other way. And so even if you were a really horrible person in some way, then you, you can be forgiven from it, which I think is where, you know, like you get the idea of like a confessional or something like that from is doesn't matter if so long as you can kind of repent for your sins and choose to change your mind in the last days of your life or whatever, then, and act more virtuously moving into the future, then, then that can be a meaningful um, transition. And, and so I, the question is then if you're being disempowered to act because you have an understanding that things are deterministic, which I don't think is the case because that's where I like, like I get into what I say in the episode is that beliefs beget outcomes. And so if you have a view of yourself that you're incapable of acting contradictory to your, you know, most basic urges or something, then you'll continue to buy into them. But if you can wrap your brain around this kind of paradoxical idea that you're, uh, you're, expectations of your ability to act is going to determine how you ultimately end up acting. That's what produces the best results. Okay. So I guess on on the noble lie concept, I wouldn't support a noble lie, but for me, it's more in unimportant. Don't just don't think about it. It's more, yeah, it's more of an unimportant truth. I would call it. Mm -hmm. Now, I do agree with you. I think you bring up a good point. The most, the greatest benefit we can get out of the free will conversation is an increase in empathy, which is generally a good thing. Mm-hmm. You know, I find myself when I'm uh, talking about humanizing um, criminals or whatever, people get upset. They're like, "Yeah, but they deserve the punishment." And I don't even use the words free wills, but free will. But I say people are products of their environment and biology none of which they control. Mm -hmm. If you were born in their shoes, you would be them. 
Mm-hmm. Right. So, so I do use this concept to help people increase empathy. But I think that there's a downside that I think people in general, not everybody, but some people have trouble making the right decision. Um, it's not always easy doing the right thing. It's not always being easy being moral. And if there's any benefit to believing that there's a God watching you, it's that you, you might be inclined to do the right thing when nobody's watching because there's someone mm-hmm. always watching. This mm-hmm. is something that secular belief just doesn't know how to solve, in my opinion, as, as well as religion. I'm, I mean, I'm agnostic to atheist, depending on your definition of God, but, but I, I could acknowledge that I don't see good solutions. And I'm, I'm worried that, you know, if we commonly accept this notion of de- determinism and lack of free will, people would just lose accountability um, justify their bad actions, say, uh, well, I don't have free will anyways. It's just my biology. It's my environment. And that kind of, that, that part of it concerns me. So I do see the benefit. I'm just not sure that if we apply it, um, in mass, it's, it's going to produce positive results. So that's why I kind of put it in the category of amazing philosophical discussion, which I actually love to explore. I'm leaning towards unimportant truth. Yeah, I think the thing is, is that lots of people already buy into that mode of thinking anyhow of like, oh, well, I can't, I'm not really that control in control of or responsible for my actions, regardless of if they've like really philosophically like interrogated the subject. And so you're always going to have people that are willing to looking for excuses to absolve themselves of responsibility. Um, and then I think the question is, because you mentioned like people are going to use that as a justification to act badly. And so then by, by which standard are you assessing their behavior as being bad? Because if it's in relation to their own self-interest, then there, you can make a, pr- a pretty logical argument in terms of, okay, well, yeah, you want to go and have another drink, but maybe you shouldn't be doing that in, in terms of, it's not so much that you're deterministic. It's like, this is just not in your long-term best interest. And some people just can't be uh, reasoned with and because they, they don't care to be. And so then I think you you just let those people live until some, something triggers them to come around. Right. I think we should we should start by teaching it to one community at a time and seeing the results and then and then work from there to see if it, we should uh, <laughs> go to scale. What so Jordan Peterson and Sam Harris is is something distracting you? you, you oh know. no, I'm just looking at my little cat. Oh, uh, I have a cat too. Yeah. Cats are awesome. One of my favorite quotes from The Power of Now by Eckhart Tolle is, I knew many Zen masters, most of them cats. Mm-hmm. They're great at it. They're great she at was it. looking very Zen. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so you speak about the disagreement between Jordan Peterson and Sam Harris, and they had, I think, three or four public discussions to try to mm-hmm. work out that difference. They made some progress, but still not so much. Do you think you could... Mm-hmm. Uh, bridge that divide yeah oh my goodness I that, that's what really motivated that episode is because I remember very vividly listening to those like both of the conversations they did on Sam's podcast and then the I think it was four lectures that they did publicly in Vancouver in 2018 and I was just like ravenous for it and then there's been a few other um situations where um like IDW people have gotten together I think there's a talk where like Ben Shapiro is there and Sean Carroll and Eric Weinstein or something. There's been a few, I've, I've watched everything that those guys have to say about this subject. Cause it's very interesting to me. Um, what was it you asked me? 
Yeah, I'm just, I, I got distracted by Ben Shapiro being here. I don't think he has anything to offer on that topic. To well, like he agrees with Jordan ultimately in terms of he just, he uses God as his. Uh... Right. Well, that, that's why I just figured like you'd get nothing, nothing new from him. But yeah. he, it's not that he doesn't have any good takes just on that, on that topic in particularly, like he, I find him to be less interesting than the, than the other guys. So my question is, how do you, I want to hear how you reconcile the difference between how they view it. Mm -hmm. Sam Harris being all about truth being the most important. Um, Jordan Peterson is all about meaning. And he even says meaning is what's true. That was like their, their first debate. He said, yeah, what gives us meaning is what's most true. So I I think both of them kind of fail to integrate the other person's position because I, in my opinion, they complement each other perfectly. And so it's something weird that's going on where they don't quite acknowledge this. Um, I think Sam doesn't ever quite give Jordan the best counter arguments. Um, and that creates an issue. I remember reading his book, like the moral landscape, which they use as a basis for lots of their discussion. And the moral landscape was not at all the book I thought it was going to be. I thought Sam was going to be forwarding arguments more in the vein of what I did in the podcast where he's talking about, um, using his belief in determinism as a justification for his moral worldview, but he doesn't do that. He he just uses social science, which I don't find nearly as persuasive. And um, so, yeah, I think Sam's responsibility just to kind of call Jordan out on his failure to wrestle with the more difficult definition of determinism, which he doesn't ever do. When Peterson talks about determinism, he he's talking about, oh, well, clearly people have the capacity to make choices. He's thinking about it from a psycholo- psychologist's point of view. So if you're just sitting there, it's like, well, clearly you're not deterministic because you can choose between doing these two different things, which isn't the crux of the issue. The issue is, yes, but the choice that you ultimately make is going to be predetermined by your set of experiences and your neurons and whatever else is going on that's motivating that. So there's this funny thing where Peterson will go around talking quite frequently about how he'll have people coming up to him all the time saying, hey, oh my God, I bumped into one of your YouTube videos. Somebody sent to me yours in the algorithm, recommended it to me, and I started watching your lectures. Changed my life, man. I'm in such a better position than I was six months ago. Thank you so much. He, tell, he tells the story all the time. But he doesn't realize that if this one man hadn't seen this one video that the algorithm had put into his feed, he never would have went down that path. So, so there's a, he, he's acknowledging the role of determinism in his success, but he doesn't quite see that, that that's what's happening for some strange reason. Does that kind of answer your question? I, like, I know there's more to it than that. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm more interested, I'm, I'm interested in, in understanding the limit to two truths. So we spoke about it. Noble lie. I'm not fully on board with noble lie, but I, you know, when I do look at the, the answer religion gives certain questions, I don't see how secular belief can ever do that. So the, the main ones are life after death. Um, if you lose a loved one and you think you're going to be reunited with them, I mean, that helps, right? Us, us atheist types will never get, get to feel, have that feeling. Now, mm. that's fine. We don't need that to, to mm. live, but it, it is a benefit that religion grants you that secularism just simply can't, unless we discover life after death, but I don't know how do we even go about that. Um, and the second one is the notion of either judgment, karma, or, or justice, essentially, that, um, first of all, the idea of bad people, 
um, getting away with their crimes is easier to deal with if you know they'll be punished in the afterlife. Mm-hmm. You might be more likely to act morally when no one's around if you know that someone up there is is watching you. Or if you know that your bad crime will cause karma, you, you'll just get bad, you know, back to you. So those are kind of benefits to these stories that I, I could see how this would benefit a society. I personally I do don't, think I don't believe them, but I, you know, if I'm gonna be honest, I could see how they benefit us. I think it's always a two-sided coin in terms of like it can it can provide a benefit or it can provide some some negative impact that you're maybe not expecting. In terms of karma, I absolutely think that that's a real force that acts in the world. And maybe not always in the way that you expect, but um, from a psychological point of view, and Peterson talks about this a lot, like whatever, and this goes back to your beliefs begetting your outcomes in terms of if you go into the world and you're looking for certain things, certain opportunities, and you're optimistic about life and confident in your abilities and stuff, you're going to go down a trajectory that's more successful and fulfilling than if you've... um, if you're not buying into that, if you just have your head down and you think, okay, I'm stuck in this little path and and you're not looking for anything outside of it. So, so you, I, I don't, so just feeding the world in terms of if you go down the street and you're smiling at people or something like that, that does, right. that sets off a tiny little feedback loop that maybe it doesn't hit right. you directly, but everything's kind of, everything's a complex system and all these things are interrelated. Yeah. So I think there's absolutely utilitarian benefit to just putting good vibes out into the world I get and it. they'll somehow come back to you, even if it's not completely obvious that that's occurring. It's, it's physical karma as opposed to metaphysical karma, mm-hmm. not magic. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you completely. Be good to others. Others will be good to you. Mm-hmm. People happy. You'll feel happy. This should be part of our value system, and we could actually show how it works. Yeah, I'm with you. Mm-hmm. It's a little bit less convincing that then there's a force of nature that will punish you uh, for, for the bad you do. But I guess there might be a trade-off in it's okay to not believe that as long as you're honest and truthful and you know, you, you know, there's, there seems to be a benefit that you gain for getting rid of a story that isn't necessarily true. Is that kind of how you see it? Yeah. Yeah. I, and I think there is nothing wrong with the religious stories insofar as they are providing you a benefit that outweighs the cost. But if you can have the benefit without any cost at all, then why wouldn't you just do that instead? Mm-hmm. Sometimes, because oftentimes if you have um, a belief in God that says, okay, yeah, okay, God's always watching, so I'm not going to do these things that would be uh, morally reprehensible. But maybe you're also going to not do things that are completely fine because you have some religious belief that's dictating your actions instead of just acting in your own long-term best interest. I'm with you on that. What are your thoughts on psychedelics? They're great. <laughs> do you uh, plan to do any activism in this uh, in, in that sphere? Activism. Um, oh, so I, 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 I use so. <laughs> it, I, my my bad. We we come from slightly different worlds. I consider myself an activist and a mediator okay. before mm-hmm. I'm a philosopher and an, an, an intellectual. So I, I use lingo that I'm more. Um, I'm you know I'm more. I more commonly use, but do you plan to talk about psychedelics um, and their, like, do, do you somehow fit this into your framework for, for helping people elevate their well-being and, and finding good values? Do you see that as part of the picture? 
Um, I think I briefly talked about psychedelics in that um, Sam Harris, Jordan Peterson episode um, as it relates to kind of, I talk about Buddhism and I talk about determinism and psychedelics kind of plays a little bit of a role in there. To me, those all are seem quite adjacent and, and psychedelics also have interesting um, relationships to complexity, just in terms of fractal relationships mm-hmm. and stuff like that. Um, I don't think I would have anything to new or interesting to say on the topic. Um, maybe if I have more experiences later on in life, then I'll, I'll feel motivated to delve down that rabbit hole. Um, I'm generally, I'm pretty, you know, I'm pro all that sort of thing. I think they can be quite beneficial to people, but I also think psychedelics are very, um, there's something more sacred about them that they shouldn't just be taken kind of recklessly. I'm always shocked when I'll be out at a party or something. One of my friends is like, oh yeah, I'm on shrooms right now. They're like, oh, yeah, you're, just, you're drinking and you're smoking weed and you're taking mushrooms for like, and you're just partying with friends. Like, no, you have to go sit on a beach somewhere and spend some time listening to music and enjoy that, the universe. That is one of the highest forms of secular blasphemy anyone could ever commit. It's to take psychedelics in like a nightclub or something like that. Yeah. 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 Don't, don't do that. And, um, it doesn't sound like a good time to me. Yeah, what? Uh, yeah, that's not how, what I would want to do. I, I, I'm, I'm with you. We, it, it should be considered a journey for introspection and transcendence, not just having a good time. That's kind of that's what I think our relationship with psychedelics mm-hmm. would be. The reason I, I asked about psychedelics and not other forms of practice is because. These are still taboo. And I guess this comes from just my activist outlook. You know, I, I don't think I have anything new to say on psychedelics, but as somebody who considers myself advocating for things that I think are important, mm-hmm. people accept that meditation is is good and important, yoga good and important. Like these are all things that could also help elevate you. But psychedelics still generally has a negative stigma. So I feel some kind of a moral obligation to share with the world their potentially transformative uh, effects, but I, but I do urge people to use them with caution because it's not for everybody. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, I'm very, definitely feel like people well, my age, there's no stigma associated whatsoever. If anything, there's, there's too much of a lack of in terms of people are mm-hmm. taking them recklessly in circumstances where, well, maybe you don't need to be doing that. Uh, I mean, obviously that's their prerogative, but yeah, I definitely feel like in the next 10 to 20 years, any sort of stigma surrounding those things is just going to evaporate naturally because there's it's pointless. Right. Yeah. And we're seeing legalization of marijuana and there's a lot of clinical studies happening now about the, the benefits of, of psychedelics and, you know. And they can't be controlled substances when you've got the internet and, you know, you can just order anything online nowadays. Them, yeah. So they're yeah. spreading around whether they're legal or not. Yeah, in Israel, we have, uh, are you familiar with the app Telegram? Mm, yeah. Yeah, so let me show you real quick. I'm going to even show that for all the viewers, just in case you want it. I mean, it's, it's better to have like a a place where it's regulated and safe than getting it off the, the black market. This is like not regulated, but it's like trusted sellers. Mm-hmm, it's mm-hmm. like, a, that's like some, I guess, Coke and then <laughs> more Coke. There we go. You have like LSD and I guess these are just being sold anonymously. Yeah. Yeah. You just reach out and then they, um, mushrooms and telegram, you can like, you have buttons and stuff. So you kind of, you message them, you tell them, um, where you, where you are, what you want. And then they will send you a picture. They, they leave it for you. So you didn't even meet the dealer. 
um, mm-hmm. they hide it near your house. So it's, it's pretty safe. <laughs> yeah. Huh. Both of them. Uh, th- this is, this is the definition of what the markets provide. <laughs> yeah. No kidding. The markets provide. Exactly. Um, I want to do a little speed round. We do this for our Patreon, uh, members. Okay. okay. A little speed round. So for those, uh, watching this on YouTube, it's going to cut to the end. Uh, and if you don't support us yet on, well, you'll still have final thoughts that they will see. Okay. This is not the last of Jane Gatsby. But if you're not supporting us on Patreon, uh, there's a link in the description. It really helps uh, me do this full time and uh, produce more awesome content and have more great conversations with people like Jane. What are some uh, final thoughts, Jane? What do you want to what do you want to leave us with? Oh, I don't know if I have anything good. It's all good. We'll, we'll take that as um, be kind to other people. There we go. Um, some will accuse that you of being a lefty for that, but, um, that should be a universal value. That's I'm, all it takes. Then sure. Call me a lefty. <laughs> <laughs> and I will leave all your con- all your links and stuff will be in the description. So if anybody's watching this, once again, touch with Jane, you know where to find it. Thank you. Um, and Jane continue on your path. I hope even after you blow up even more that you're still answering me on Twitter. Um, Absolutely. There we go. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much.